Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Glory to Jesus Christ, Father Michael O'Loughlin here with Father Nathan Goebel. Glory forever. <laughs> nice. Sitting here podcasting. And uh, Father Nathan loves me enough that we got a we got an icon of the crucifixion of our Lord behind my head, so no flag yet, but icon that's there's a lot of blood in that one that's that's why i liked it yeah it's like dripping down onto that cross yeah. onto that skull so you have the uh icon coming out of christ's side flowing onto the uh mourners nearby and then you have the icon of the uh the blood from his feet flowing down onto the skull of adam golgotha skull place you ever been to the holy land Father no Nathan? yeah hoping to get there there's a uh the chapel underneath the calvary is the chapel of adam and eve and uh, hmm. it's just a natural impurity in the rocks that were the you know the discarded stones upon Chris, the crucifixion happened on top of it, and there's a natural impurity that there's these red uh, red marbleization in the stones, hmm. and so it it you know you can imagine the blood of Christ his cross flowing down into the tomb of Adam because traditionally Adam was the crucifixion happened over the tomb of Adam, um, flowing down and, and bringing life to to Adam. So yeah, there's a lot of blood in that one. I like it. There you go. In a, in a tasteful way. In a tasteful way. Tasteful. Not way. macabre. No. Is that how you say that? Yeah. These people... Macabre. Some of the people on the podcast have been remarking that I pronounce things incorrectly, and that, that hurts, folks. That hurts. You say publican once. <laughs> <laughs> publican. Uh, but, uh, it'll follow you forever. It'll follow me forever. So no, now, Neville no. gets more, more junk from that than you do because well. of his German pronunciations. Macabre. Someone sent us an email explaining what the word, the name Nepal means. Nepal? Yeah, it's it's a Czech word. Yes. And it, oh, I had to look it up. Reach. I should, I should research our banter better. But he said something about what the word Nepal means. I'll I'll look it up. I'll bring it up next time. He says that it means Nepal does not drink. He says that. No, yeah, that's what it was. Really? And I think it was like, but he said he was saying it was past tense, like has not had a drink or something like that he put the guy in the email who's out living in the Czech Republic but mm. it was uh, we'll look you up and give you a shout out buddy um, but yes it was something about yeah does not drink the irony if only yeah <laughs> doesn't gobel mean it does not smoke no it doesn't mean that either I don't know what gobel means Olaf well it's Goebbels it has hair really yeah, no oh <laughs> <laughs> it means of the lake land or what well, one of my oh. Irish buddies explained so oh Lachlan uh, oh, is the uh, of, and then Lachlan is the Lakeland, so that's the part of Ireland that my family's from, is the Lakelander or uh, County Clare. But the uh, I had a friend who knows Irish who told me that Lakeland doesn't mean like a land where there are lakes. It, it literally means like foreigners. So if you're foreigners to Ireland, then they say you're of the Lakelands, hmm. which is which. Then he claims most foreigners to that area were Vikings, so I'm not as Irish as I wanted to be, but we get Viking blood too, so right. amen, arg. Drag yeah. your wives out by their hair, all the rest of this stuff. Really? Did they do know. that? Vikings do that. Are you in comics? Did you see that? Oh, okay. <laughs> was that yours? No, I think it was your door. No way. Yeah, it was a doorbell. It wasn't my phone. No, nope. they're selling they're more. They're selling it. more Boy Scout popcorn. Now I'm all out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Where are your priorities, Father Nathan? <laughs> you want to hit pause and go buy popcorn? <laughs> Does not eat popcorn. <laughs> Nip popcorn. See, this is why we shut the door. We left the door open. That's why we normally shut the door, right? Now so they can hear us. Hear <laughs> Shout out to whoever's at Nathan's door. <laughs> Help, my house is on fire. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. We're doing podcasts. All right. Um, so uh, I got jealous of Father Nathan and Father Nepple's vocation story, so I figured I'd do my vocation so story. So he made up his own. So I made one up that's more interesting than theirs. Actually, it's not. That's the problem with this is that... Yeah, right. Like, you gave yours where he's like, oh, oh Father Goble, that was amazing. And then Father, Nathan, then Father John gives his, and oh, that was amazing. So You got shot God's at, at work. God's, oh, I wasn't going to tell that part. Oh. I guess I have to now. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Uh, vocation story. Uh, he's got I, notes for it, folks. I do. I do have notes, because I, I, I don't want to tell everything. I just, I wanted to keep it under an hour and a half, so um, I do have notes. I'm looking at my computer. <laughs> I wrote an outline this morning. See, we do prepare for our podcast. You prepared for yours, too. You had notes this morning. Yeah, and I watched the video of you Luke and Laura. the video. See, we, we do prepare. All right. 
So when I was, uh, I grew up very loving Catholic family, the oldest. So uh, just I, the, the amount of prayers said for me, the moment my mother discovered that I was in her womb is just like overwhelming. Hmm. Like the, the, she consecrated me to the mother of God. She prayed for just the, the intensity of my mother's prayers for me. She, as I mentioned before, she wanted a Michael because she wanted the strongest angel taking care of her, her little one when she couldn't. So there was just a very intense, you know, assault of prayers upon me, even in my mother's womb, which is, which was probably the beginning of any vocation. Um, so that was beautiful. Yeah. But when I, uh, when I went to kindergarten and the first time we watched in kindergarten a video on on the things you could be when you grow up, and one of the uh, one of the things in the video was a uh, a coal miner and it just showed a coal miner mining coal, and I had learned somewhere in kindergarten or from home that the diamonds are just are just compressed coal over time it gets so mm-hmm. compressed under the earth and that it becomes a diamond so um, I thought I was like oh this is amazing I didn't know it's so easy to mine coal I'll just be a diamond miner then and then then I'll, I'll be horribly wealthy and I'll be happy in my money and that's what I'll do so I I drew this you know kindergartner's picture of me mining diamonds out of the uh, out of the ground and brought it to my brought it to my mother and she kind of oh patted me on the head that's great you can be whatever you want when you grow up but I'm sure you didn't see this in a video in public school, but you can also be a priest. I just want you know to know that, that that's on, on on your radar. And I said, oh, you know, so I thought about it. And at the time I went to, we were Roman Catholic. I went to the Roman Catholic priest that, that was the pastor of the parish. And I said two things. I said, you know, I think I want to be a priest when I grow up, just from my mom's, you know, short words. And he says, oh, he says, well, you know, that's something you discern. That's something that God tells you. And uh, so what I want you to do is I want you to pray three Hail Marys every single day and those three Hail Marys will will allow the Mother of God, Our Lady, to storm the throne of God and to beg him to let you know what your vocation is. Mm. And so literally from when I was five, I remember all through college, I don't know if I even missed a single day, like just praying those three Hail Marys, it became a ritual, a daily thing for me, short, sweet. I started adding to it like the first Hail Mary is for today. The second Hail Mary is for like this week or this semester. The third one is for, is for like my deathbed and the, the rest of my life, like the, that, that God will call me to do things at these three different times, which was not his intention. Um, but this priest then amazingly kind of said, do you want to be a religious priest or a diocesan priest? Of course, those words to a five-year-old mean absolutely nothing. So, right. um, so I said, what does that mean? The next Sunday he in this massively crowded Roman Catholic church, he found me after the recessional and walked up to me holding a handwritten double-sided sheet of paper that he had written himself that showed the difference between a diocesan and a religious priest. He wrote out all the different religious, you know, the Franciscans, Dominicans, even all these things out, explained how he was a diocesan priest. And it really struck me even that young of how much effort he put into like caring about what I, this five-year-old kid did, you yeah. know, what, what I thought about what his job was. And that really inspired me to want to do it even more. I saw this self-gift, the time he spent writing, handwriting this out for me, it was a sign that he loved what he did. He loved being a priest and he loved showing that to others, you know, like I think every kid wants, wants to be what his father is, you know, at some point in his life. Yeah. Um, so you like want to grow up. And so this priest obviously not having any children, what was, saw this as a moment of sharing his attraction to his own priesthood with his spiritual child. But it really did strike me. I, I need to, I need to find if I still have that. And if I, if I still have the drawing I did of the diamond miner, my mom kept all this stuff, especially for the oldest. So diamonds. And so I got to check that out. I might still have that. That'd be cool to, to dig what up. What was the priest's name? Uh, Father, the priest was Father, uh, I don't I remember his first name because we called him by his last name, but Father Jaramillo. Jaramillo. In, uh, at Our Lady Assumption Roman Catholic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. There you go. Yep. And, There's uh, somebody out there that knows that guy. Yeah, he, he passed away a few years ago. Um, but, uh, I, I went to, I went to go see him after I was ordained a priest and he didn't recognize me at all, but I think he was, he was already getting kind of old and senile at that point. But yeah, yeah. pray for the soul of Father Jaramillo, um, from Albuquerque, Diocese of Santa Fe. All right. Um, so the, uh, that was when I was five. Um, and when my mom, like, I remember I was like probably six and my mom kind of brought up to me again, like, you know, I, I, you, I heard the Father Jaramillo told me that you were asking about the priesthood. Um, you know, what do you, what do you think about that? And I remember saying like, really analyzing my mind saying, well, I'll be a priest if I can't find a good girl. Like, like, like you know, the, the, that comes first. Like, like the, the girl comes first. And I, I was thinking about that. Like, why would I, why would that come to mind? And I remember this sounds crazy, but my first kiss was in kindergarten Whoa. when I was five years old. And it certainly, I didn't start it. Like we were on a field trip. It's just this girl and I in the backseat of my mom's car at five years old. She throws a blanket over our heads and just like 
pulls my face into hers and just like I was so like kind of weirded out but like is this is what this is supposed to be like you know type thing and so she pulls the bed she pulls she pulls the blanket off to five-year-olds and I'm like looking at my mom and I can see her eyes in the rearview mirror and she, you know, the blanket hit my, but anyway, it was, it was really funny. So I think in that I was like, is this the girl I have to marry now? Like I'm now, I'm now kissed her. So may, maybe I can't be a priest anymore. Anyway, it was, uh, so th- there was that like kind of analysis. I remember my mom saying, it doesn't work like that. Like you're, you're going to love the celibate priesthood as much as you would love having a wife and children. And, you know, at that time I, I was like, whatever, you know, it, just, it doesn't make any sense to me. But as I got older, I really did remember her words about that. Um, when I got a little bit older, then I started kind of having what most people want is the kind of supernatural aspects of the call. But I didn't want any supernatural aspects of the call. So like I had a dream when I was probably in second grade of of like I had a baby and this baby looked exactly like me, exactly like me. And I remember being, you know, second grade or what, seven years old, holding this baby that was mine, you know, it, had it, a beard. it, it, it somehow <laughs> it somehow makes sense in a dream. Looking at his face and it looked just like me, but but I'm I'm Irish white and this baby was was, you know, sub-Saharan African black. But, you know, in a dream, all that makes sense. That's fine. And and the baby's mother was this girl, Danielle Rojo, in my class. And she was white, red hair, bright red hair. And But in somehow in my, in my dream, this just made sense that we could have this baby that looked just like me. And what struck me about it was that I, this baby had the same genes as me. Like, like the, and the, the joy I had with looking at a baby that, that had my blood and had my DNA, you know, in a sense. And so I was so struck by that, that I wanted a baby so bad. And then even in the dream, like Danielle came and took the baby away and like told you, you're never going to see your baby again. And I was so struck by that, that I woke up just crying, like just weeping. And, uh, and I, when I saw her the next day, I just, I, I, I was like, I can't tell her I had that dream. That's just the weirdest thing in the world. Like, explain, you took our baby away from me, you know? Um, but what happened was, is a couple weeks later, I was looking through one of my mother's, those PIME missionary magazines. Mm-hmm. She had one of those and I was flipping through it and it had a, an advertisement to subscribe to the magazine. And in that advertisement, it had a, a mother in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa with a baby on her back. And she was leading a donkey and it just said, come minister to the people of sub-Saharan Africa and support them through the missionaries. And that, that was the baby of my dream. I mean, it it looked just like me in the photo and this, this tiny baby. And it, it struck me. And the first thing I thought of was, I'm called to be a missionary. Like this is, this is an obvious sign from God that he wants me to preach and to be a missionary. Um, so I actually cut it out stupidly. I should have saved it, cut it out and sent it in to subscribe to the magazine myself. Cause my mom had just like picked it up from church or something like that and brought it. Um, so th- that, that was like one of the first signs that may, well, maybe God is calling me to be a missionary through this, through this dream, etc. Um, when I then turned 17 and I'm skipping a lot here, I'll go back to it. Cause I, I'm at 17. I was not this holy young man. Um, but when I, when I walked into, when I walked into church the first time at Byzantine church in the Byzantine liturgy, you tell the priest your name before receiving the Eucharist because the priest uses your name as part of the prayer for the yep. reception of the Eucharist. You've seen this. And um, so when I walked up there, I when I was 17, I looked like I was 11. You know, I, I was just so young looking. And I walked up in the, in the the priest, I say my name, you know, Michael. I'm so sorry back then too, Michael. And the priest literally says, this is Father Chris Zuger down in Albuquerque. He says, the priest Michael, and then he like paused, and he got the smile on his face, and he says, "Michael receives the precious, most holy, most pure blood of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, etc." He gives me the Eucharist, and then like the next day, my mother made him. That's my my mom's love language is definitely like baking pumpkin bread for people. <laughs> it's very specific. And so, like, we went, we had just experienced this new church, and she wanted to bake pumpkin bread. So she had me bring it into the priest. And when I walked into his office, like, I knocked on the door, but it was kind of open already, and I was the only one in the room. So he he kind of turned around, kind of startled by the knock, and and he there was a woman in there that kind of had her head bowed, and I thought, oh my gosh, she's hearing her confession. But he he told me later on that he was startled not because I knocked, but because he had this like this weird feeling that a priest was there. And so he called me into his office the next Sunday and he says, have you ever considered the priesthood? He said, because there's been twice now where I've, when I've seen you, something just told me like spiritually that, that, that I was looking at a priest. And I said, well, my, I was a kid. I did, you know? Um, and so that, that was a, that was something that even though I didn't, what I, I didn't want anything miraculous because even when I was a kid, I thought if I become a priest one day, 
I want to obviously be encouraging of other people to become priests. And so if I'm doing that, I don't want to say you have to wait for a dream or you have to wait for your pastor to think you're a priest. I, I just wanted to say there's something else. The way that God calls you is not that obvious because not all vocations or stories are that obvious. Um, so what happened in the meantime, um, when I got into middle school, I don't know if there just wasn't enough excitement in my, in my loving family home or something, but me and my buddies, we wanted to become ninjas. Like that, that was our dream was like, we're going to become ninjas. And we, we were great raised in Christian families. So it was kind of like, well, we'll, we'll be vigilante ninjas, kind of like Robin Hood. Right. And so in sixth grade, we were, it was the first time that we didn't take the, the school bus to school, but we took the city bus to school in Albuquerque. So, so we had all this time before school and after school to get in trouble. And we absolutely did. We, we literally used the, the water, like the, the drainage system in Albuquerque as our own little underground city. And we would crawl and run and we'd go to the mall and it's do Ninja everything. Turtles, man. <laughs> it was, it was probably and the same time it came out. It, it was, it was the Ninja Turtles came out shortly after we did this. So we actually thought that someone was like spying on us and like wrote Ninja Turtles based on our life. Um, but, but that, that's exactly what it was. We were, we were, we go to the mall and there was this one shop in the mall that sold, that sold like Chinese stars, grappling hooks, throwing knives and I don't know what this guy was thinking, but he was selling Chinese stars, throwing knives and grappling hooks to kids that were, what, 11, 12 years old? Yes. And so we'd buy them and we'd build in our coats, like in our winter coats, which we'd wear all summer long because we had to hide stuff. We'd, we'd hide, like we'd make special pockets for Chinese stars. We'd have like a backpack with a special area for our grappling hook, you know, hello, Loon. Um, we, we, we'd do all these things. And so we would, we'd build like little ninja hideouts on the campus of our middle school. And it was just, you know, all these things that were, we just needed some sort of excitement. We needed something. So who was in your crew? Oh, Raphael. Yeah. (laughs) Well, since I was Michael, I was definitely Michelangelo. There were four of us at one point. My brother, Sean, I think was Leonardo. Lamangelo. Yeah. (laughs) You had to fit Sean in there. And then we had Eric Hartenberger. Um, who was one of my buddies growing up, who's now Lutheran minister um, up in the Milwaukee area. He was he was also, one of the, I don't remember beyond that. He might have been Raphael. Maybe Sean was Raphael. I don't remember. Um, and I had a buddy, Adam. I had a buddy, Taylor. And kind of all of us together, we somehow made this Ninja Turtle thing work. Anyway, um, so we, we, we took this way too seriously. So we started a a club because Albuquerque had so many gangs in it that we didn't want to be a gang like that's bad but we can be a ninja club and we needed a symbol for our ninja club we needed a name for our ninja club so the only symbol that we knew how to make to draw was that that skater letter s yes you know what I'm talking about like, three vertical lines on top three vertical lines on the bottom and then you make an s out of it yep. and uh, we thought that was the coolest thing we're like we need we, we were ninjas so the name has to be something that begins with an s ninjas so we're like surf ninjas <laughs> but this is albuquerque we didn't even know what water was we had never experienced a beach in our life oh. so it was like we're like so literally we're we're looking around and we're sitting in my in my, my house looking in our backyard and eric's like what about sparrow ninjas and we're like what that's not like mean or exciting sparrows these little birds hopping around yeah so at one point we decided we're just gonna you know table the issue of the name but we still draw the letter s all the time on all of our books and things like sn so sn the n for ninjas we figure out a way of the n looking like the s um, so one day my buddy comes up and he goes, we just learned in class today, this is middle school, that there's a thing called a tsunami. And a tsunami is this massive wave that like can exactly. take over a whole city. And we're like, that's it. We're the tsunami ninjas, SN tsunami ninjas. And then like three weeks later, I think I said the name to my dad or something. He's like, the word tsunami starts with the T. <laughs> Oh, whatever, man. man. So we literally would draw a little tiny T next to the S. So like it was big S and a little tiny T before the S so that we could somehow be the tsunami ninjas. Anyway, we let this occupy our life for way too long. We literally would take pieces of wood. We'd carve symbols into the wood and then take a soldering iron and melt metal into the shapes of these things so we have little like metals hanging off our shirts and my mom made us ninja masks for halloween yes. and we'd wear them everywhere we'd buy like black jumpsuits anyway uh just like sweatsuits so we we were way too into this and so 
when I got into high school, we got a little bit too old for that, but we still had like, we recognize each other's ability to do something that should get us in trouble, but not get in trouble for it. So that's what we do. Like before cell phones, my buddy one time, Eric, he took his cordless phone from his house, snuck into his neighbor's house, like the, the catty corner neighbor, second neighbor's house. I was sitting in the house with them there. And the cordless phone still worked. So he's on, I'm on our family's phone in my house. He's on his family's cordless phone in his neighbor's house under their dining room table, whispering to me, like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. So he got, he got like a special badge for that, like being able to break into somebody's house. So anyway, we would sneak out at night. We'd break into our high school through the vents. We had this whole backpack full of everything we needed to do to get into our high school in like 10 minutes. So we'd, we'd climb up a tree. This is Sandy High School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Climb up a tree. Don't try this, kids. <laughs> Don't try this at home. Um, I, I got away from all this, thank God, of course. But um, we'd go in through the air conditioning vents. We'd steal, like, the janitor's keys so that we had keys to then get in. Oh, it was, it was, we needed this excitement, and we felt like we're, we're training for vigilante stuff. Like, we're going to use this for good at some point. But So th- this is the time, like, the beginning of my kind of setting aside the call to the priesthood was was beginning of middle school. Um, just because I, I, my, my mind was occupied with other things, etc. Um, so then when I, when I got, when I turned 16, I think we, I was kind of getting away from that and starting to think about the priesthood again, just because my parents loved priests so much and they loved the church so much. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to feel that love from other people. I see how my parents love their parish priest. Like I want, I want to feel the love. So if, if for simplistic means, I went then to a discernment weekend with the Archdiocese of Santa Fe where I'm from and, uh, quick funny story about that i i actually i didn't think i sleptwalked ever but that night like we were in the seminary in what the old seminary in santa fe and so there were these massive rooms it was like a retreat center at the time there's massive rooms and so like i got a whole room to myself at 16 years old and it was so big i had never slept in a room that big and i had a brother that i shared a room with my whole life that i thought you know this is just so weird i'm actually going to sleep in my clothes i like i i just felt like i i can't be vulnerable. I can't, you know, get undressed in any, any any shape. So that night, I had a dream about walking out of my room, walking back into my room, seeing somebody else in the bed, thinking I was in the wrong room, and then so slamming the door. And then I woke up standing in the hallway <laughs> with the door slammed in front of me, and it was my room, and I had I didn't have the key on me, and so I was locked out. It was like probably ten o'clock at night, you know, eleven o'clock at night. If they put us to bed, so I literally slept that night in front of my door. Thank God, fully clothed. Like I was like, this is a gift of God that I stayed in my clothes right. and slept the night. So anyway, a discernment weekend. That discernment weekend was was very helpful because I saw the really cool priest, Father John Carney, was the vocation director at the time. Very cool priest, Father Charles de Santa Fe, and just made made the priesthood again look very real and normal and human and attractive. Um, so, skipping ahead, then when I got into into college, you know, twelve years of public school did not prepare me for college at all. Um, I went, I went to Thomas Aquinas in California, and what happened what? was, yeah, you did. I know, I know, I'm, I'm not the type. But what what happened was is when I was in high school, well, We're at just one point, learning about this, folks, yeah. breaking news. <laughs> When I was when I was a freshman year of high school, me and my buddy did something really stupid. So this is before Columbine. We had a cap gun. And we were going to go get new caps for, for my brother, who was in middle school. He wanted, It was his gun, his cap gun. It was We were going to do it for him because we could get out. First time in our lives that we could get out during lunch and go. So we bought caps. And my, my buddy, I won't name his name, but my buddy's, we're walking down this major street in Albuquerque. And he goes, um, how about you try to scare people with that gun? Now, post-Columbine, this sounds horrible. It was horrible even before Columbine. But but so I have this, this cap gun with a big orange tip. Um, and we're like just pointing it at cars and laughing, being stupid kids. And uh, anyway, this guy on a motorcycle sees us doing it, and he whips around on the motorcycle going like 35 miles per hour, and he wrecks right there on the street in front of us. Um, and we look in just shock and despair at first to see him wreck, but he's wearing full leathers, thank God, a helmet. He jumps up and starts chasing us. And so we all three just split off. I go run, and I just jump over the first the first wall I see my two buddies run down the street without jumping over the wall to make a long story short. I got away. wasn't caught. They were caught by this guy and they were, it, this is so sad, but what we were so proud of was that I got away and that they were both covered. I mean, they had 
Chinese stars and throwing knives and grappling hooks all over their body. And the cops that frisked them didn't find any of these things. And it's like, it was so sad that we were so proud of that, but we were. So what happened was, is that they totally squealed on me. I mean, totally squealed on me. So you lose your medals, you rat. <laughs> I agree. And so my- No kids, be virtuous. Tell the truth. Thanks. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. The more you know. Um, so anyway, my mom gets a call has no idea that I'm doing any of this stuff, has no idea I've been doing this stuff for years, and gets a call from the police. They show up at the house. They think that she's hiding me. It just it got really crazy. Anyway, I called her from school once I found out. I met my friends at school, found out what had gone on. I went into the, the detective's office. We had a school detective. I went into his office, called my mom, got in trouble. She came in. My dad got called in from work. And um, and at this point, the cop is giving me this, this what I what I, what most kids would have needed, a what are you going to do with your life talk? You know, you're doing this. Anyway, they handcuffed me because what happened was is the guy that got that got scared thought it was a real gun. He had been shot at before well on his motorcycle, and he was literally – he wrecked because he was pulling out his gun to shoot back. He would have been completely justified, completely justified. But, but think, I mean, he wrecked, so it was horrible, but he was safe. He was okay, et cetera. Um, but so when the cops mad at me because they, they thought it was still a real gun. So when they walked me back, I had to show them because I had when I was hiding, I had hid the gun. I had hid my jacket. Obviously. I had just <laughs> thought like a criminal. And so they brought me back. I, I showed them the jacket that he had identified. I showed them the 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 just was just a cap gun with a red tip. Um, so but the cops giving me this whole spiel like, what do you do with your life? You know, get your stuff together. Or you're going to be a criminal when you grow up. And my mom's crying up to this point as soon as. He says, what are you going to do with your life? She starts laughing. And he like looks over and goes, what does he want to be a cop? And she's like, no, he wants to be a priest. And I was just sitting there like, oh, this is not a yep. good witness to the faith at Whatever, all. Whatever, um, So anyway, it was, but it was, that was a real call on me to, you know, you got to, if you're going to be a priest, you need to start acting like one, like, you know, really. So I did for the next few years, but my behavior didn't change too much so that I got in a big fight with our, with our vice principal my senior year. I, I only needed two classes to graduate, and he, he said, nope, school policies need to take at least five classes. Anyway, I had had a lot of run-ins with him before because of my behavior issues in high school, so he so we got in a fight in his office, and finally I said, you know what? I don't need this school. Like I can go do homeschool and take two classes and graduate just fine. Well, some that, whole, that word homeschool set him off, and he yelled at me, and I yelled back at him, and pretty much he kicked me out of school the second half of my senior year. I went home. I found that you could do the Seton Homeschool program, which is a very Catholic, yeah. very respected Catholic homeschool program. I did two classes. I got my high school diploma from Seton Homeschool. And I think Thomas Aquinas College saw that and thought, oh, it's a nice homeschooled young That's man. Right. Yeah. Graduated Seton. He'll be just fine here. Not at all. I went to Thomas Aquinas for a year, just didn't have... I had trouble making friends, certainly had trouble keeping up with the studies. Uh, the seminar method was wonderful. Thomas Aquinas is a great school if you can handle it. You know, I just couldn't. And I failed huh. Latin, and they did not invite me back. What so, years was that? That was 96, 97. Wow. I wonder if you were the same you in there with Blaha. 96, I don't 90. think so. I, I mean, I was literally there, only there one year. And I... I think I would remember because yeah. I mean there were so few students, like 250 students at the time when I was there. So anyway, I didn't get invited back. I tried testing. Ba- I was Latin. I failed. I tried testing back twice. Didn't get any other time. Went to community college in Albuquerque for a year at, at, at um, what do they call it now? CNM. Uh, it was TVI at the time. And I had community college in Albuquerque. And then I was looking for another degree. So I, I then I discovered Steubenville. So that's when I transferred to Steubenville. Went to University of Steubenville for Thomas three years. Thomas dropout. Yeah. Ten Steubenville. <laughs> It's so funny because I still get alumni stuff from them. I'm like, I was there a year and you kicked me out and you're sending me alumni information. Yeah. But I think they like the word Rev in front of my name and it, they're a little bit proud of that. So That's anyway, right. so they sent me the information. But uh, not to rip on them. I love Thomas Aquinas. It really is a good school. Wonderful liberal arts school if if you're if you can handle the academics. Um, I just I could not handle the academics and I didn't I was not strong enough in my faith to handle a place like that. So I really don't think there's that many people at Thomas Aquinas listening to the podcast. <laughs> this is isn't really their style. If you are, you can send you can send a what's up and we we definitely want to give a shout yeah, out shout to shout out to TAC grads. Father C M Buckley, yeah. <laughs> uh Cornelius Michael. He's the chaplain there. But yeah. I haven't I don't know, I haven't heard many people in whatever. Is that yeah. Camarillo or No Santa Paula. What what diet or what town is that in? 
the well, the uh, the school the school's out in the middle of nowhere near Santa Paula between Santa Paula okay. and Ojai. So oh, um, that's what it was. Shout out, oh Andrew Whaley. Shout out to Andrew Whaley in the Counter Precision podcast. He does. Oh, that's right. He has a similar one. But anyway, um, so yes, yeah, present so, students yeah. at Thomas Aquinas. So I I I barely graduated high school. I failed out of my first year of college. I nearly failed out of Steubenville, but thank God had a thesis reader who gave me much mercy on me. Um, after Thomas Aquinas, uh, I'm sorry. When I went to Steubenville, was really when I discovered like. This sounds crazy, but how old was I? Like 19, 20 years old when I first met the first women that I totally could have married. Like they were just quality women. And like I dated when I um, when I was in my uh, community college year, but it was just they were not not girls that I really should have married. It was just girls I thought were pretty and I liked hanging out with them and looking at their faces and, you know, talking to pretty girl type thing. So um, when I. When I went to uh, when I went to Steubenville, I met just such quality women. And at this point, I had been. So I had, you're saying you didn't meet quality women at Thomas Aquinas? I just want to make no, sure. No, no, no. Okay, okay. Thank you, thank you. I met. There was one girl at Thomas Aquinas. I was absolutely head over heels for. I'm not going to name her name. I was head over heels for her, but she was she was not only out of my league, but she knew she was out of my league. So just didn't didn't even pay me the time of day. Like at all, and so the the difference as Steubenville was that they were out of my league, but either they didn't know it or they were like they were still willing to hang out with me. So when I went to Steubenville, I I knew that I could get a major discount on my on my studies if I joined the pre theology program. But since I had never really dated a good girl, I wanted to do that for a time. And at this point, I'd already experienced a bit of the Byzantine Church in Albuquerque when I went to school. So. Um, that year of community college, I went to the Byzantine Church. Mm-hmm. So when I went to Steubenville and I met these girls, it was really, it was really good because I I had so much insecurity. I think at that point that I could not truthfully and and solidly discern celibacy without a good girl liking me. Like I had to experience the love of an amazing woman and and to say like. I could marry this woman, we'd have an absolutely wonderful life together. And I, I had to know that'd be the case before I had the freedom to discern celibacy. I had to say, I'll be happy as a celibate, and I'll be very happy as a married man. And so now that I have the freedom to see that both of those could be the case, now I can truly listen to our Lord's call and say, which one of those two very beautiful, happy vocations are you calling me to? Um, so I did. And it was it was honestly in not necessarily dating, but like even when I was discerning in the pre-theology program, I ended up joining the pre-theology program. When I was in the program, when you could either not date seriously or not date at all, depending on what level, either Living Stones or Quinonia, you were like, I hung out with girls all the time. And like what, sometimes one specific girl and really said, you know what? We, we know each other. We love each other. And even though we're not dating, this is really beautiful. And when I went to Austria and I did my semester in Austria, that's when I met a girl there an American girl, but studying in Austria, that was like my dream girl. Absolutely my dream girl. Every every aspect about her. And she was so independent and confident, she would have made, made an amazing priest wife. And so I, I, I like, it, that sounds, but it's true. Like, amazing priest you, you, you wife. Get so, you get so much gossip about you as a priest wife, like in the Byzantine world. Because like, you know, are, are is her kids acting up? Well, goodness, if the priest kids are acting up, how do they can they expect my kids to behave at all? You know, is their lawn mode? You know, how's their, how's their house look? You yeah. know, it's just, you have to find a wife that, that can, that can take all that, you know, and then that, that it's not going to break down and you have to be a priest that, that can take that and not break down either you know um so this girl would have been perfect and so i kept on praying i was like lord i i'm so attracted to the priesthood i'm also so attracted to this woman but i'm getting no consolation regarding her at all like i'm getting all kinds of consolation regarding the priesthood but i'm not getting a lot of consolation regarding her so literally what i what i did was i was like you know lord if you're not going to talk to me if you're not going to give give me any positive you know, pushings towards asking this girl out. Like, I'm just going to do it because I trust that if it's not what I'm supposed to do, you'll stop me. And th- those are kind of two different aspects of, of, of discernment, right? You you say, Lord, give me consolation or a push in this direction. If you're not, I'm going to walk in the direction that makes the most sense with a fully fully trusting that you're going to stop me. In other words, I trust you enough and, and my, my union with you, your presence with me, that you're going to guide me in, in the way I'm walking and and this is kind of where the beauty of, I, at this point, I'd pushed off kind of all those more miraculous aspects of the call in the early life because I didn't want them. I didn't want the miraculous. I wanted the I wanted the really hard, the struggling, cry myself to sleep at night discernment. I, I wanted God to meet me in a place that was not, 
I wasn't going to be obviously called because I wanted to be able to tell the story in a way that was, so people wouldn't say, well, if I don't get those miraculous things then I must not be called. Mm. So this was the period where God gave me those gifts. And so, um, actually first year of Steubenville, I did cry myself to sleep like first week over a girl. And I was like, okay, okay. I, I, I just, I was like, I am so anxious right now. This girl is amazing. And I like her so much. And yet I feel called to the priesthood and how is this going to work? And, and I just, I literally was crying in bed. Like, like, and I woke up the next morning going, okay, I did that. I, I cried myself to sleep. And that's what I, that's what I needed to feel that I am as emotionally and personally invested in finding a wife as I am in celibacy. Because celibacy can be a cop out too. You know, celibacy is the easy thing. You don't need to attract anybody. You know, you, you know nobody's going to ask you when you're celibate. Like, you know, do you have commitment issues or anything like that? Or you're a priest, so they're not going to ask you that. Most people aren't. Um, so, so I, I did. I this girl. I literally just was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to go ask her out. And I, I'm, I'm 99% sure she'll say yes. Like, she and I just traveled the most romantic places in the world in Europe together. Like, our conversations were amazing. It would have just made so much sense. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, and as, I was, as I was walking up to her room, I, I was like, okay, Lord, stop me. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to stop me? And, and, and I just imagined, like, what would that look like for the Lord to stop me in this? And I had all these envisions, like, a, you know, someone coming running out of the room and throwing the door open, just clocking me, you know, I, uh, the, the, a chasm in the ground opening up and me falling into it. You know, all these different ways that God could stop me from asking her out. Um, so I was on, like, on cloud nine, walking up to her room, just as happy as can be. I, I was like, let's go to dinner at this place. It'll be awesome. I had like zero anxiety about it at all. And I got up to her room and I stood there like an idiot in front of her room with my hand up, like ready to knock on the door, but just could not do it. And like, when I was like, what is wrong? I was looking deep and I had this just like surface joy, but deep down a lot of anxiety. And so that was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to knock. I'm going to go back to the chapel. So I walked back to the chapel and in the chapel, I was like, well, if I had this deep anxiety about, about her, maybe it's about marriage, so now let me pray about celibacy. On the surface, had all this anxiety. Celibacy is unnatural. It makes no sense. I'm going to come home to an empty house. I'm going to be so lonely. Like I'm, I'm, This is a lifelong decision that, that I do not want on the surface. But when I prayed about it down deep, I had this deep consolation and peace. Like mm-hmm. It's just inexplicable, but it, it was... It was the difference between surface joy but deep anxiety or surface surface anxiety but deeper joy. And I was like, I need to go with the deeper joy. Even if celibacy on the surface is like doesn't make much sense to me, I have this deep joy about just an utter reliance on God, an unmediated relationship that is intimate and exclusive with our Lord, that he's going to give me everything I need in ways that are are not obvious. So like when I'm lonely, he, he might not always give me someone to end my loneliness, but he will give me a solution to that loneliness in him and through him, through ideally through prayer. So this was this this massive revelation to me about all the things, this sounds weird, but all the things I love about women, all the things I love about marriage and children, all those things can can be fulfilled. The reason why those things are so attractive to me, God knows the reasons for those things. And he can give me the solution to the reasons rather than the individuals themselves. So he can say, as a man and as a human being, you want companionship, you want affirmation, you want affection, you want commitment, you want the ability to say that I'm going to raise this child and it's going to be affected by me so I can literally pass on my wisdom to somebody else and it'll really affect their life. All those things that are so joyful to a man, you can have those, but in a deeper way, like the source of those joys you're going to have the source rather than the, the the effects in the world. And so that's just how I saw it. You know, most people are called to marriage. Most people are called to find the source in these specific things. That's what we're created for. Some of us who are celibate are called to to find those things in the source of them rather than in the lived expression of them, the way that our Lord works. So that was, it was one of those things where I, I still had enough practical knowledge, though, that I never told this girl, I'm not going to say her name either, I never told this girl that I felt that way about her, because I knew that it would be really hard if she returned the affections and returned the attraction, it'd be really hard for me to to stick to my guns. And so when I left Austria, I actually didn't even stay in contact. I was like, I don't, I don't want your information, because... I'm going to have a really weak moment. I'm going to want to, you know, <laughs> drunk die or whatever. I don't, I don't drink that much, but you know, I, in a week, in a weaker moment, I'm going to, I'm going to call you up. So it was, it was this kind of just ungraceful discernment of celibacy that then lasted even a couple other girls and uh, one other girl and a couple other years. 
Um, but then when I went to when I went to seminary, then I had really a couple, you know, doubts, but but mostly had really committed myself to celibacy. And I just I don't know why more people don't become priests. Like the priesthood is this, it is really, it's an amazing vocation. Like, especially in the Byzantine world where you can be married too. Like, I don't understand the lack of vocations because who wouldn't want to be a priest? Like, is there something about the the self-gift and, you, and you're like, just yesterday, I had a friend, wonderful friend of mine, she miscarried her baby. And I was, I was there in the hospital when she gave birth to the body and I was able to bless her. I was able to bless the body, the baby, the baby's body and like sit with the family, talk with her husband and just like let him mourn and be there for that. And I was the only one that was there other than the two of them. Like that intimacy into a family's life. I just, I walked out so joyful. Like who other, what other vocation in the world gets to be that intimate with, with, with the people that they serve. I mean, you hear people's confessions. There's an immense intimacy there that people open up to you, the vulnerability, that, that, that's a sign of love. And so even on the surface, it was just so, so I never doubted a call to the priesthood. So celibacy was a real discernment. And, and that was just deeper and, and, you know, it, it's more of a daily struggle than the priesthood because the priesthood is, is just so wonderful. But the, the celibacy is a daily struggle, but the, there's always that consolation in the deep discernment. Am I, when I'm discerning, am I, am I feeling deep peace or deep anxiety about a lived reality? So I'm living this way. Do I feel deep peace or anxiety? Don't worry about the surface. The surface will change daily, but the deeper stuff. So that was how I, how I felt so confident then going into a, a, uh, discernment of not only the priesthood, but in the Byzantine context, the celibate priesthood. And then honestly, eight years later, I, I discovered the companions. And so they really did become the, in, in the Eastern church, it's kind of absurd to have a priest living alone, a celibate living alone. You you need to have community. And so the, the companions have kind of been that for me um, in a very real way. So it's, it really is, you know, it's, you, you guys aren't nearly as good as a wife and kids, you know, <laughs> Sorry, obviously, it's just not the same love, not the same community. But but what what I need in a wife and kids, God gives me directly. What I need in community, God gives me through you guys, through my priest companion friends. So it's it's beautiful and it's good. Hmm. And what percentage of the diocese would you say is um, is celibate? Like how many of yeah. your priests are? Yeah. For a hundred years, we were not allowed to ordain married men in oh, the United that's States. Right. So. For a long time, you know, 99% of priests were celibate. Um, Pope Francis just changed that a bit, about a, a little less than a year ago. But we, we have been bringing, we've been bringing married priests from Slovakia and Ukraine over. And so right now we have, my bishop has ordained two married men, you know, in the past two years. He's ordained two married men to the priesthood. We have another, our, our, in seminary right now, we have one married man, one widower um, who will be celibate in seminary. But we, we, in addition to those, and then the priests we brought over from Slovakia and Ukraine, almost one third of our priests are married. Okay. So, and that, that number is only going to increase. I mean, now that, now that we're able to go back to our original traditions of having married priesthood, there are some Orthodox churches. I think the OCA, Orthodox Church America, you cannot be a celibate pastor. You are either a married pastor of a parish or you are a celibate man in a, in a monastery. Wow. Yeah. So you, you, there's a real need for community, which we companions understand very well. We talk about that all the time. Um, but but what I did even so even before Pope Francis opened that up, I I had this understanding that that I know it's a Byzantine tradition of the married priesthood. So I'm not going. I'm going to convince. I'm going to tell myself that that can be the case. I can be called a married priesthood, and I it was so important for me to discern celibacy completely apart from the priesthood. I think. Even Roman Catholic seminarians, they need to discern celibacy apart yeah. from the priesthood because there is an insecurity. A lot of guys enter seminary like really having an insecurity about, could I find a good girl? Would a good girl have me? And and if, if they go into the priesthood like that, guess when you're going to find the good girls? After you're ordained. And then the good girls will be, you know, be, be yeah. showing you all attention and you'll have these intimate experiences with the confession, et cetera. And then all of a sudden you'll say, oh my gosh, I never discern celibacy well. So you need to discern celibacy before even you discern priesthood especially in the Roman context, or you're going to be overwhelmed with the love of priesthood and you're just going to think that celibacy is a sacrifice where it's not, it is a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice that, that you can fight your whole life if you were not, if you did not discern it deliberately. I want, celibacy is a, I'm going to get my consolations directly from God. And I'm, that means I have to live a good prayer life, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Father Michael's also the vocation director for his yeah. uh, 
His FRQ. If I'm sounding like a vocations director, it's coming from that. You know, yeah, but that's good. I, mean, I guess the last question I would have is there any, is there anything you would say to? I mean, because a lot of young men have experiences like like you're detailing. You know, like early on seven, eight, nine, then later it comes again eleven, twelve, thirteen. But it's not like all the time. You know, right. like there's this there's a, a major event in a person's life that they hear something and then it kind of goes quiet for a while right? and then it comes back and whatever else. So like, do you have any advice for people, either parents of kids uh, or um, the kids themselves who may feel like something's going down, but they can't really explain it. You're not going to know until like 15 years later when you're in celibate and you're in your seminary. And then you're just like, man, that's the reason why I could never knock on that girl's door. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The graces will only become apparent. And then they don't seem like graces at the time because it's like, why is it that everybody else seems to have no problem? It's like, well, they're living a natural vocation. Yours is a supernatural vocation and it, and it requires some finagling. Well, one thing I'll say is like, if, if you have someone in your life, if you're a parent or you're a friend or you're a pastor, if you have someone in your life that you think from whatever point of perception and discernment of a vocation you have, one thing in the vocations world that we discourage people from is what's called the shotgun method. And that's that you just tell every young man, you'd make a good priest. Right. You'd look good in black. You know, all these all these things that we say that that's you're, you're kind of saying it to everybody, hoping that it'll stick to one or two. Like that is that is usually not effective at all because every guy's if if you're talking about the priesthood, every guy's gonna say, He says this to everybody. Right. Like so you need you need to call you need if you see it in somebody, make it a very important and conversation done with that one individual. That you know, that 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 one individual. So you, you pull the kid aside and say, I see in you, and I'm only talking to you here, and here's how I see it. I see our Lord working in your heart and maybe calling you to ministerial leadership in the church. And that is through the priesthood. And so that very intentional, special, unique conversation with that young man. So in same thing with a girl with, to, be, to become a nun, you know, yeah. or, you know, you, you, you make it special, unique and intentional and make it different than you're talking to everybody else so that they say, no, this is, he took the time out to talk to just me. And then if you're someone who's discerning, you know, it is, you especially if you're discerning celibacy, you know, you really can't put celibacy and marriage like on a scale and see which one which one is is more more attractive. Marriage is always gonna be more attractive. Marriage is what comes natural to you, and every man should want to get married. Every celibate should say, yeah, "Of course, I'm attracted to marriage." You know that that is natural to me, and even I think I could make a good husband and father in a way. You know, with God's help. So. So you don't you can't put them on a scale because marriage is always going to outweigh celibacy. You have to pick one, whichever one you feel that 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 is the most attractive to you when you when you've kind of researched them both. Do one of them and live it fully. You know, I think I'm called to marriage. I'm going to go full bore at marriage. I'm going to start dating. I'm going to I'm going to start bettering myself so that that a woman will, you know will be attracted to me. I'm going to do all these things and then I'm going to pray every night though and say, do I feel this deep inner peace about marriage? But you only do it about the one thing you're actually doing. And then take a break from dating and say, I'm going to spend this period of time discerning celibacy. I'm going to live like a celibate. I'm going to, whenever I feel lonely, I'm going to turn to prayer, you know, instead of turning to calling up my girlfriend, you know, I'm going to live this life. As far as I know what celibacy is, I'm going to live this life. And then every night I'm going to pray, do I feel peace or anxiety about the life I'm now living? You know, and you have to really pick one, run with it, and then pray, is God giving me consolation or anxiety about this life that I am now discerning by living it hmm. yeah get started yeah get started and we'll be praying for you and, and ask people to pray for you you know because that there those the people's prayers are, are what allows for the inexplicable peace you know your own prayers but also the community praying for you is is what when, when you say like i'm moving this direction it has nothing to do with me that's because of of our lord and he's working through the the body of Christ, which is the church, which is his own body, and through the the primary method of, of praying. So pray for vocations, pray for your own vocation, pray the vocations of those you love, and then uh, let God do the work. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. We know a little bit more. You're always so affirming of me on my podcast. I think well, you can I, see that I'm insecure. Just got to make sure that you're doing all right. You know? <laughs> well, thank you, Father. I appreciate that. I mean, I can't satisfy you in the same way as a wife and child, apparently, but you <laughs> that know, is true. I'll, I'll do what I can, you know? You look great in those pants, Michael. I'm oh, proud thank of you. you. 
right. I came from a hard day of work. I just want to hear that you respect me, Father Nathan. You know, you've been gone a lot. And um, I don't know. This is true. Just never go anywhere except to your family's house. Yeah. So shout out to uh, Father John Neppel and Father Mike Rapp, who I will see next week. I will be in Rome uh, doing some homeless ministry out there. And uh, shout out to them. I'll see you to see them before you do. So Yes, you will. Maybe they can tell the story about their uh, their new system that they set up. I'm not going to talk about it because that'll be gonna... that'll be great banter for exactly. their very first podcast. Exactly, <laughs> folks. There's a snafu in the works, but you'll have to hear it once they finally get it set up. We'll so. let them tell the story because it is hilarious. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're looking for a teaser for the girl's name uh, from uh, Michael's Love Life. I'm pretty sure it was Topanga from Boy Meets World. <laughs> Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> like us on Facebook. Anything else? Oh, you want to do shout outs? I, I do have a few shout outs. Yeah, let's not stop yet. All right. Um, Free your mind. <laughs> uh, la la la. All right. Uh, Frank Morris, uh, you requested shout outs too. Teresa Yurkes. I need to contact you guys how to ask how to pronounce these names. Teresa, or you do a few in Father Nathan. Humble yourself. I'm, I'm always doing these ones. I'm always making a fool of myself with those shout outs. Uh, Teresa Yurkes, um, his incredible girlfriend. Uh, Mac Daddy Gills, his friend with whom he talks about manly things. And Tom <laughs> Kelly. I don't <laughs> want a classiest man, a saint, Aloysius Young Adult Ministry from your friend Frank Morris. I don't want to give these shout outs with the creepy names <laughs> i what like it that? okay I'll, I'll give it to you. i think it's fun all right christine thomas requesting a shout out for sean mccormick who teaches the saint mary's in big rapids um and then the, <laughs> what? Who the person who who do gives me the shout out says i think she meant grand rapids <laughs> so, wait what did it's you either big so, so big I, I have this note about the shout out it just says christine thomas requesting a shout out for sean mccormick who teaches the saint mary's in big rapids and then he puts in parentheses i think she meant grand rapids michigan big rapids. <laughs> big rapids or grand rapids whatever it is all right uh two more real quick michael parrot and his wife give a shout out to their unborn son they're in the second trimester trimester and they're longtime listeners so oh that is awesome i like that shout out for their unborn son uh, name him uh, Nathan Michael and then whatever your last name is after us that'd be awesome Para <laughs> yeah oh Para yes Nathan Michael Para alright and then uh, <laughs> Emily Dudick in Texas uh, wants to shout out to her uh, her boyfriend Drew Vela so shout out to you guys Perseveres Drew Vela <laughs> nice to meet you Drew Vela Drew Vela yeah all right. God bless you guys. Thanks for uh, listening. Okay. Anything else? No, I'm good. When a boy meets world, a boy meets world. That's Topanga's. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. That's Topanga's thing. Soft. All right. We're good. God Th- bless y'all. See ya. Love ya. <laughs> <laughs>